0: As we consider the power of the gospel, turn with me now. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And near as we can tell, Malachi was the last prophet to write as well. As that time between the exile and the advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ went silent, Malachi gives God's words to his people, calling them to repentance. And laying out God's case against the nation who had not changed, who had repented some, and yet when they came back from exile, still struggled with some of the same idolatries. And so God lays his case out against Israel. And part of that case we read in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, through Malachi 3, 5. This is God's word. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask, by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years." So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Let us pray. To the great and mighty God, help us to see you, help us to know you through this message today. Help us to see that we need to know you more and that we desperately need you to cleanse and refine us by the power of your spirit and your Messiah. May we have hearts and minds that are turned toward you and toward your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't think it would surprise many of us to hear that there are many within this world who call themselves Christians that do not know a lot about God or about his world. Now, I'm not talking about those of us who understand that a finite creature cannot completely know an infinite God and yet still pursue knowledge of that God. I'm talking about people who claim to worship God, who even show up to church on a regular basis, but it cannot tell you what it means for God to be holy or what the good news of the gospel is. Biblical literacy is at an all-time low within the church that claims to believe the God of the Bible, and statistics state that it is only getting worse. Now, since we are a people of, and culture driven by practicality, I, I've got to thinking as we are beginning and moving our way through this study on the attributes of God, why study God and his attributes? And that's what we are going to cover today. We're going to look at these two statements that God accuses Israel of making. Statements which have forgotten the goodness and the person and the work of our God. And then we are going to look at the exchanges that are made that we saw in Romans chapter 1 earlier. Three exchanges that are made that lead to those problems. And then we're going to see God's solution to the fact that God's people oftentimes not only don't know him, but leave his will and his truth in that. So the the main the first thing we're going to look at is the problem with not knowing God. If we don't know, if we don't study, if we don't learn about the God of the scriptures, one of the main things that happens to the Christian is that we end up with a skewed view, a messed up view of sin and God's relationship to sin. God accuses the Israelites in Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 of two improper statements. The second one, which we will look at first, is the question, where is the justice of God? Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the, the scriptures that the people had as they came back from exile, God had revealed himself to be a God who hated sin and would punish sin. The law is based upon God's justice. In Exodus chapters 21 and 22, after God has given the Ten Commandments, he gives civil law to the nation of Israel. And he tells them the the restitution that would have to be given for crimes committed against people. And notice that punishment in the Old Testament, especially for crimes, is based more on restitution, paying back what is owed before the crime because of the crime, rather than retribution, seeking revenge against the criminal. And so you have all of these laws that say, if you steal a sheep, you owe this many. If you steal a cow or injure a cow, you owe this much money or this much livestock. And it's all boiled down to that statement, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And this is not necessarily a statement that if you and I get into a fight, and I punch you and knock out one of your teeth, that you then have the right to knock out one of my teeth in equal measure. It's a principle that the punishment must fit the crime. That if you are going to steal $100 worth of stuff, well, then you owe at least $100 worth of stuff back to the person that you stole it from. The punishment must fit the crime. The scales must be balanced. This law of justice is written into Israel's law code because God is a God who does and who will punish sin as it deserves. Now, the question might be asked, why would my one time sin deserve eternal punishment? Well, it's because my one-time sin is not just a one-time sin. It is an over and over and over again sin. My sin is done against a God of infinite glory and infinite majesty. And when I sin against a God of infinite glory and infinite majesty, I am saying that I want to take the place of that infinite God for all of eternity. And then... If we look through scripture, we see that sin does not necessarily end at death for those who are in rebellion against God. They, were for, they will for all eternity continue to turn their back upon God and hate him for all that he is. But God reveals himself, as we'll see in a few weeks, as a God who is just and full of justice and that he will punish sin. And yet the Israelites look at the cultures around them who are engaged in sin And they are not punished. And so they ask, where is the God of justice? Why will God not punish sin? We do not see evidence of his justice. Which is problematic because they have seen evidence of his justice. Some of them were in or near Jerusalem when it was destroyed and they were taken to Babylon. All of them had come back to see that Jerusalem had been destroyed because of Israel's idolatry and sin. And they were in the process of rebuilding that temple, that city, and yet they have the audacity to ask, where is God's justice? Is God one who will truly forgive sin? And they do this because they fall into one of those exchanges in Romans 1. In Romans 25, Paul writes, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. What was the truth? Well, the truth is that God is just. and what was the lie that they had bought into? That God will not punish sin. Now God is a God of justice, but he is also a God who is patient. Nehemiah chapter nine, verse 30 says, "However, you, being God, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear." Therefore, you gave them into the land of the peoples of the land. God's patience is given to Israel prior to the, the, uh, the exile, but it's given to all people now as a means for people to be given an opportunity to repent. Why doesn't God just strike with lightning those who are rebellious against him? It's because he's patient and he's given them an opportunity to fill the weight of their scales of injustice and sin, or he's giving them the opportunity to repent. Nehemiah stated that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the Israelites. These prophets called them to repentance, told them what would happen if they didn't repent, told them what would happen if they did repent, and the Israelites ignored those calls. Were they complacent because they were thought they were God's chosen people? Were they comfortable in the life of idolatry that they lived? We don't know. Both and more could be true. But the fact is that the Israelites refused to repent when God gave them opportunity, thereby refusing to avert the judgment and justice of God. You and I must keep that in mind. We must not exchange the truth that God is just for the lie that God does not forgive. Knowledge that God is holy and just and true and infinite should lead us to understand that God has promised to judge sin and he will do it. We must use the times of patience to repent and to call others to do the same, but that's not the only problem that the Israelites have because they don't know enough about their God. It gets even worse as we look at the first accusation that God gives to them in this passage. They are saying, the Israelites, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. So not only are they saying God is not a God of justice, they are saying that God is the opposite of God, of a God of justice, and he is blessing those who sin. Put yourselves in the Israelites' shoes for just a moment. You've come back from Babylon. Your capital city is destroyed. You've rebuilt the temple, and yet the glory of that temple is nothing compared to the glory that was there before. And you look around at the nations around you, some of whom persecuted the Israelites by either taking part in Babylon's destruction or taking land by theft while the Israelites were gone. They're worshiping false gods. They're engaging in all types of wickedness and sinful activity. And they've got homes to live in and they've got food to eat on a regular basis that they don't have to buy from other people because they haven't gotten their their crops in the ground yet. They have all the blessings that the Israelites thought they were coming back to and the Israelites make the mistake that thinking that the prosperity of the wicked was God's blessing on the Israelites. They were saying, here we are, God's chosen people working hard and trying to rebuild the glory that that Jerusalem had and that God had at one time placed upon this city and this temple. We are struggling and these pagans have it easy. God must be blessing their idolatry. And this comes to the next exchange in Romans chapter one, where Paul says that they exchanged the glory of God for a God made in their own image. That's a tendency that you and I have when we look and we exchange the truth of God for a lie that God is as he reveals himself in the scriptures, we exchange that truth for the lie that God is something less than what he claims to be. The next step in the exchange is to exchange worship of the true God. To the worship of created things, things made with human hands, representing creation, or even if we don't make the idols that we can set on a mantelpiece and worship, we worship ourselves We worship our own wisdom, we worship our own goodness. The Israelites thought that they were speaking of the one true God, but they exchanged the glory and truth of the one true God for the lie of a God made in their image. And then in Romans one, those first two great exchanges in Romans one and in our passage in Malachi three, We see that the next exchange is that you exchange the natural for the unnatural or for those things that are contrary to God's law or contrary to nature. Now, what unnatural things have the Israelites exchanged for the natural? Look at verse 5 of Malachi chapter 3. He says, I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me. Ultimately, they have exchanged the fear, the worship, the awe of the almighty Lord and God for the things of this earth, for the sins that they are committing, that they are thinking that God is blessing. They have exchanged the wisdom of God for sorcery, for necromancy and for astrology. They have exchanged God's marriage laws for adultery and idolatry. They have exchanged the truth of God. God is a God of truth. They have exchanged, exchanged that for falsehood and lies. They have exchanged God's justice for defrauding Laborers for oppressing widows and orphans and for depriving those who move through on a pilgrimage or move into the area, depriving them of justice. Those are the things that for the church or from the people of Israel are the unnatural things that they have embraced for Rome and the Roman Christians. He talks he begins with talking about sexual deviancy, but that's not where he ends. Notice in verses 29 through 32, they have filled every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. It's amazing to me. He throws that into that list. Disobedience of parents. God takes his authority seriously. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And if you think that you and I are not found somewhere in the exchange of natural for the unnatural, then you're not paying attention as you read that list. Things that we consider to be acceptable sins like envy, gossip, slander, argumentativeness, pride, Bragging and boastness, boastfulness are found in that list because brothers and sisters, you and I, every single one of us struggles with these three exchanges. We know the truth about God. We have had our hearts changed so that we are in tune with the truth, but we still doubt God. We still worship or at least try to worship the things of this earth. And we still oftentimes pursue the violation of the Ten Commandments rather than keeping them in the power of the spirit. God has given us these mandates, both in creation and in his law, whether it's the marriage mandates or the call to those 10 commandments to honor and love God and love neighbor as we love ourselves. And we are tempted so often to look the other way. And so we study God, We learn more about God so that we are protected from exchanging the truth of God for the lie so that we are protected from worshiping created things rather than the God above. And so that we are protected when we are tempted to sin. So God identifies the problems for the Israelites. What's his solution to the problem? his solution comes in the form of a messenger and a Messiah. He says in three one, he says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? God first sends messengers. Those are those prophets that Nehemiah talked about. And the message of the prophets for the Israelites was not just this is what's going to happen in the future. The most important message that the prophets brought was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that one faithful messenger came 400 years after Malachi writes that in the form of John the Baptist. And that was his message to the people in the countryside Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. How does God prepare for his Messiah? By calling people to repent. And that is the message that we have before us as we study God, as we study God, as we are convicted of sins, as we are come to that Isaiah moment. Woe is me for I'm a man or woman of unclean lips. We are called to <laughs> repent to prepare for the Messiah because God will send his Messiah, the second messenger who comes to the temple in his glory and who upholds the mighty covenant. And this messenger, this Messiah comes with two roles. First is the role of redemption and salvation. Notice that he says the second messenger will come. The Messiah will come with the refiner's fire, or the launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by. Notice the judge stands, and yet the one who refines and purifies sits. Most commentators see this as a sign of care and concern and love. As he goes through the process of refining and purifying his people, he does so in love and in redemption. Fire is meant to cleanse ore and precious metals. If you want to purify gold, you melt it down and then the impurities separate from the gold and you can either skim them off or pour off the gold and the impurities are left at the bottom. The launderer's soap, it's not just fill your cap full to the line, throw it in the washing machine and then press the button. It's an aggressive working, kind of like the old washboards that that men and women, mostly women probably would use. And then you would see the spot and you would rub soap on it and you would rub it on the washboard and you would rub more soap on it. and You would rub it on the washboard over and over again until that spot was purified. It was cleansed. Yes, it is difficult, hard on the garment. But the end result is purity. The end result is holiness that comes to us through that Messiah and through him alone. Hearing the message of repentance does not make your life easy. But God uses the hardships of life to cleanse, to refine and to purify you so that through Christ, you are an acceptable offering to him. Later on in Romans, Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to make ourselves a worthy offering through the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit, we are to make ourselves a reasonable offering, a reasonable sacrifice to our God. And that Messiah does that work in those who repent. But what about those who don't repent? That's a be careful what you ask for situation. As he says in verse five, so I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against all those who, Who engage in those sins without repentance, says the Lord Almighty. The people of Israel open this passage by saying, God is not who he says he is. He needs to show himself to us as he has revealed himself. And God says, if you refuse to repent, be careful what you ask for. Because I will come to you and I will reveal myself to be a God of justice. And I will judge the sins of the nations. But I will judge you as well. See this list in Malachi 3, 5, this list in Romans 1, they are not only sins that God confronted in the nations around his people. But sins that God does confront and will be judged within God's people if we refuse to repent. Repent. That is one of the dangers of reading these lists, both the one in Malachi and the one in Romans and the one similar in 1 Corinthians 6. As we look at those lists and we say, well, I've got Jesus. I don't have to worry about that. God's talking about all those people out there. But Paul has this great line in 1 Corinthians six, ten, and 11. He goes through this list of sins, very similar, a little bit shorter, but very similar to the list he gives in Romans chapter one. And at the end of it, he goes, and such were some of the people outside. No, such were some of you. But Jesus came and you repented. If you and I are not diligent to learn about God and the life he calls us to live in Christ, the danger is that God will come to judge the church. So, the problem the Israelites had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, the glory of God for an idol, and that which was natural for the unnatural. The solution to the problems listen to the messenger when he calls you to repent, or God will judge. In our prayer meetings on Wednesday nights, right now, we are going through the letters, the seven letters to the churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And most all of those churches, except for one, had things that Jesus commended, things that they did really well. All but two of them, however, had issues, had problems. Some of them harbored false teachings. Some of them harbored a lack of love for God and a love for neighbor. Some harbored sinful practices and coldness about the things of God. Some even harbored sexual immorality. And Jesus threatened to remove their lampstand, their status as his church, if they did not repent and pursue holiness and purity. And in a moment of utter wisdom, somebody at our, Bible, at our prayer meeting on Wednesday night, it was not me, said, you know, if we truly take these letters seriously, there's not a church that exists that does not struggle in these areas. We all need to repent, don't we? And the answer to that is, yeah, there is no perfect church, and we all need to be on the lookout for these sins in our midst. Why do we go through the hard work of pulling out various scriptures throughout the Bible, bringing in those hard concepts sometimes of philosophy that just make our brains hurt in order to see about God, It's because we want to worship him and serve him as he calls us to do that. And we want to make sure that we are worshiping the true God, that we have not, that you and I have not exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and that we have not exchanged the worship and glory of him for the worship of idols. And so that we may be careful to pursue the fruit of our salvation, which is holiness and obedience. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to you so that we may see your glory and so that we may worship you as the one true God. And we may worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. As we go this week, take this blessing upon you. May the favor of the Lord, our God, rest upon you. May, it, may the favor of the Lord establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, may he establish the work of our hands. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this sermon from Fairly Associate Reform Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our church and its ministries, please find us on Facebook or visit us at www.arpchurchfairly.org. That's www.arpchurchfairlea.org. Have a blessed day.